Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is brought to you this week by HelloFresh. You want to hear a, a real HelloFresh anecdote from my life? I live on a street where the house numbers repeat. It's a whole long story that I didn't learn until I was literally signing the papers on this place. But I, I get a lot of things that really are supposed to go five houses down. And recently, I've been getting the HelloFresh box. Uh, it's It's tempting every single week but I have to walk it down to my neighbors. And then I get to have a conversation about HelloFresh with like a real customer, right? Uh, and so I've asked him, I said, what, what's it like? Do you like it? And uh, he works at a plant and he said, man, I work third shift. It's awesome. I get to have home-cooked meals when I'm going into the factory uh, and it has changed the way I think about food. That's real, man. That's real, and you can experience that. Hello Fresh, change the way you think about food. That's not the official tagline or in any sort of script they sent, but I'm just going to go ahead and take it because I like it. Pre-measured ingredients, mouth-watering seasonal recipes, and it shows up at your door or maybe five houses down in my door. It just kind of depends. Chicken katsu, I don't even know what katsu is, but I'm into it. And gravy-smothered meatballs, take me home. Country roads. Uh, you can go to the link in our show notes and get 80 bucks off, including free shipping on Hello Fresh. It's the number one meal kit just ask my neighbor. Now, let's do uh, rock and roll bedtime stories. Don't go to sleep, mother. Don't go to sleep. And do me a favor. Don't disturb my friend. He's dead tired. Well, what the hell are you saying, Doss? You've lost half your body sleeping. I, I sleep pretty hard. Welcome to rock and roll bedtime stories. Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories exists to lay waste to the rumor and innuendo that you've heard about your favorite bands and your favorite songs. My name is Brian. And I'm Murdoch. You can get involved in the show when you email us. We are the storyguys at gmail.com. We love to hear from you, especially if it's nice words. And we also love to answer questions that you might have. And, you know, we've heard from some folks since we did the episode a few weeks back about Andrew W.K., um, which I'm still reeling from a bit. I talked to someone yesterday who was like, dude, I just listened to that Andrew WK episode, and what? What? It's like, I know, right? Uh, That's the general general reaction. We, yeah. we, we discussed uh, similar situations of impersonation or reputation co-opting in creation at the end of that episode, and I said, this is a direct quote, I said, rapper Rick Ross got sued by the actual Rick Ross for impersonation, and the fake famous Rick Ross won. Do you remember me saying that? <laughs> yeah. So I so do. we heard from some of you that it, and basically the response was like, "Wait, what? Rick Ro- what? Rick Ross." So, um I have some more information on that. We set aside time on the show today to discuss the quite compelling story of the two Rick Rosses. The Ross I, we might call them. All right. Sweet, man. It's all new to me. We haven't spent a ton of time on hip hop on this show, but we've also heard from you that we should do more of that. So this is, this is going to be both of those birds. Uh, what are what are your feelings, your history, your relationship with, uh, with Rick Ross? Do you, do you have one at all? I got nothing. I got no relationship with Rick Ross. Like, can you name a Rick Ross song? Do you know anything about him? No. And, and what's just as embarrassing. Everyone, I, I didn't understand this the other day. I saw the, it's been a couple weeks. I saw the episode about auto tune on this is pop with, yeah, with, yeah, yeah. with, T, with T-Pain and I said out loud I was like you know I couldn't pick a T-Pain song out of a lineup and they're like what do you mean you can't pick a T-Pain song and I was like I don't know man they're just the songs that had auto-tune in them I never listened to any of those songs and so I couldn't pick a Rick Ross song either okay okay that's fine that's fine uh, to oversimplify a bit Rick Ross becomes a force in rap music in what feels like kind of overnight sensation manner on the strength 
of a particular song, and that song is this. It's called Hustling. Every day I'm, every day I'm hustling. Who you suckers think you're tripping with? Yes, I'm the boss. 745, white on white, that's Rick Ross. I cut them wide, I cut them long, I cut them fat. I keep them coming back. We keep them coming back. So this song comes out in 2006, and it blows the doors off of a bunch of people. It basically starts a uh, it starts a bidding war in in the rap record industry. Diddy goes after him, Gotti goes after him, and then he ends up signing with Jay Z and Def Jam for multiple millions. Where did this guy come from? Who is this dude? And how do we get to the fake Rick Ross? I'm so excited. <laughs> it's going to take a minute. Let's start with what we know for sure. William Leonard Roberts II was born in January of 1976 in Mississippi, and then he's raised in Florida. And he may have seemed to be an overnight sensation when hustling hits, as I mentioned. Uh, but if you do that math, 1976, it hits in 06. When hustling happens for William Leonard, he is 30 years old. So this is not the story of some young kid getting swept up in a lucky break, right? He'd yeah. Been, he'd been trying to make this happen for some time. In fact, he used to drop bars under a different moniker. They used to call him Teflon de Don, which I find Te- oddly hard to say. See if you can say that three times fast. Is it Teflon Le Don? Teflon de Don. De Don. Te- so Teflon de Don. D-A. D-A. De Don. Okay. De Don. Teflon de Don. That is hard. That's fun to say, though. Teflon de Don. I feel like I'm like teaching a toddler to talk. Teflon de Don. Uh, yeah. So, so I, also, I also feel very white trying to say uh, Teflon yeah, that de goes Don. With, that goes without saying. Anyone who listens to this show knows that. So why, in 2006, when energy started swirling around this new guy in rap, why was he going by the name Rick Ross? So let, let's pause here and go somewhere other than the hot streets of Miami for a moment. Let's instead head to a nice, cool movie theater. All my life, I wanted to be a rapper. But nothing seemed to work. Then I got a new idea. Let's turn ourselves into gangster rappers. Are you aware that your band might be arrested for indecency tonight? Cell Block 4 is not afraid to go to jail. Cell Block 4 is from jail. It would only be like sending them home. And under no circumstances are you to perform Sweat of My... God, I just love that I don't give a damn hip-hop attitude. It's so real. You brothers. So uh, when was the last time you saw CB4? I, th- I think it's been a decade. But I will tell you, when it came out, it was one of those movies that I watched repeatedly, like, let's say another movie like Friday, where I just watched it over and over again. It would be like, uh, hey, you just want to come to my apartment and watch Friday? And, hey, you want to come to my apartment and watch CB4? It was one of those movies. Man, yeah. I watched that movie a lot. It, so it stars a comedian that some people might have heard of named Chris Rock. And let, let me, just for those unfamiliar, let me read you the plot. Albert, an aspiring rapper and suburban kid who idolizes gangster rappers he sees on television and his friends, Euripides and Otis, decide that they want to start a rap group. Unfortunately, even though all three of them are talented, they have no connections and no image with which they can market themselves. (laughs) No image. Okay, so yeah, just pay attention. In order to get their name heard and build up a reputation, they appeal to local crime kingpin and nightclub owner Gusto, along with his sidekick and henchmen, to ask for a spot on the bill at his club. 
During their meeting, by complete coincidence, the police rush in and throw Gusto in jail. Taking advantage of the situation, Albert steals Gusto's criminal background and identity and renames himself MC Gusto and forms the hardcore gangster rap group CB4, Cell Block 4, as you heard them mention, and successfully signs with a local music mogul. Now, here's my favorite part. CB4 quickly becomes the hottest band on the charts with controversial hits like Sweat From My Balls and Straight, yeah. Straight Out of Low Cash. <laughs> <laughs> so, obviously, this movie is parody, and it comes out 13 years before Hustlin' hits the charts. But this movie reemerges in the next few years after Rick Ross hits the scene as a shorthand reference for him uh, as he enters into his career. And why? Why is his validity as a rapper being questioned? I'm, I'm going to move chronologically here, and we're going to visit three big moments. But first, I feel like it's important to look a little bit at the lyrical content of William Leonard Roberts II as he starts to emerge as a rap powerhouse. And to do that, we have to zoom out and gain a little context on rap in general at the time. Now, this is later, or, or more, I should say more recent than a lot of things we talk about on this show, right? We're only, we're only going back about 15 years on this story. But yeah. let's rewind back to 06, whether or not you followed hip-hop. And I'll give you a little bit about what it was like at the time. This is the opening line of an article published in December of 06. So Hustlin' hit on August, in August of 06. In December of 06, just months after that record comes out, Cocaine and hip-hop share a long history, but over the last few years, there's been a surge in coke-themed songs and artists, a.k.a. crack rap. Now, crack rap is mostly credited to guys like Scarface and the group Clips, uh, but it stretches to E-40 that year, and of course, I mean, crack's always been part of Jay-Z's image, so it's, it's not like a new thing. And Jay-Z is one of the forces behind Rick Ross, right? A few years yeah. after this, rapper Freeway actually writes a song called Crack Rap. But I bring this up to illustrate that the expectations for a rapper selling himself as legit at this time involve selling drugs. It's just kind of part of the thing, right? And Rick Ross comes out of the gate trying to live up to these expectations. Let me read you a verse out of Hustlin'. I cut them wide, I cut them long, I cut them fat. I keep them coming back, we keep them coming back. I know Pablo Noriega and real Noriega, he owe me a hundred favors. So, quick translation, he says he knows a bunch of drug dealers and he's cutting up cocaine. That's what all of that means. <laughs> For those of you squares out there, Rick Ross <laughs> is talking about being a I mean, coke dealer. Listen, listen, I had to look it up too, it's okay. Uh, bottom line, Immediately, the Rick Ross story and his image is built around this idea that he <clears throat> sold drugs. Now, hindsight is always twenty twenty, but it's interesting to note that in the research for this, I came across the original 2006 review of Rick Ross's much-hyped debut, Port of Miami. And as much as I hate to give credit to the usually miserable and pretentious people at Pitchfork, this review from 2006 reads like prophecy now, all these years later. They gave the album 5.4 on the 10-point scale, and they made this very astute observation. Even while, and you have to remember, most publications and people were talking about how great this record was, all right? So instead, Pitchfork writes this. In a gross perversion of lyric writing fundamentals, Ross usually issues the specific for the general. We never learn for sure where Rick Ross came from, 
And that prevents us from truly knowing where he's coming from. He's that rare mythical creature, a rapper without a backstory. I mean, Sam Ubel, the guy who wrote that review, should own a Pulitzer. Like, he somehow wow. beat the rest of the world to the punch by two years. That was August 2006. So now we're going to go to the first of these three moments I mentioned a minute ago. And the first one okay. happens almost exactly two years later in July of 2008. I don't entirely know what spurs this other than other than what was discovered, I guess. But at some point, MediaTakeout.com, with the help of the smoking gun, publish photos of William Leonard Roberts II. Photos of a scandalous nature. Now, you just want us to take some guesses as to what might be in these photos. Is it cocaine? Well, that would that would benefit him. But what's the opposite? If you're if you're trying to make people think you sold cocaine, what's the opposite thing you'd want people to see a picture of? Uh, you working with a whole bunch of kids? <laughs> I was hoping you were going to say drinking a Shirley Temple, which would be awesome. Also, uh, but no, that's a good one. How about uh, how about graduating from prison guard school? Oh wow! <laughs> the smoking gun was all over this, right? They were like the truthers. What a weird thing to get that so, guy like to attack him for. They find pay stubs, they find documentation, but as soon as it hits the news, Rick Ross just says it's fake. He was like way pre-Trump on this fake news thing, and this starts in July 2008. It takes until May 2009 in XXL Magazine. Ross finally comes clean and admits that it is true. For 18 months between 95 and 97, he was, in fact, a CO in Florida. Wow. He, he then spent years. I literally found an article that was published in 2014 where he was still talking about this with Sway Calloway. He spent years trying to justify and explain away this thing he did and saying that it was, like, for money only, right? Because it, it conflicts. It, it is. It's like one of those things where you stop and you're like, wait, that's kind of strange. Why would, why would anyone even care? But he comes out of the gate as Rick Ross, the crack dealer, who's now a rapper, right? So it's all about his street cred. And we're going to talk about this, but just go ahead and put a little uh, put a little thumbtack in the bulletin board around this idea of cred. Because, and think about the time, 2006 and the idea of, of cred in rap music. I think things have changed, but at the time it was very, very important. Part of the reason that this hangs over him for so long has to do with a second event. So I said there's three. So that was the first one. The second one, enter another rapper into the story, Curtis Jackson, a.k.a. 50 Cent. Wait, what's your relationship with 50 Cent? Uh, I remember he had that bottled water prank, which is pretty funny. Um, <laughs> I did have a, a 50 Cent. There was a uh, end of club uh, question at Trivia about two weeks ago. <laughs> Speaking of squares who don't know anything about cocaine. Well, uh, yeah. what I know about uh, 50 Cent is uh, I learned at Trivia. I'm going to get your t-shirt yeah. that says that. Everything I know about gangster rap, I learned at Trivia Night. Yeah, I think he kind of sucks. I've been in a relationship with him because of when I entered radio, right? So you were in radio a few years ahead of me. I entered radio in 2003 at a pop top 40 station. And, I, we, dude, we could not get away for 50 Cent for like... A couple of years. Um, 
in the club, of course, was a massive hit. I remember my very, very early radio shifts learning the ropes of, of how to be on the radio and how to run the board and all that stuff. And it was, seemed like constantly in the club was playing. There was a song that was like not super popular. It was a follow up to in the club that I actually really liked called 21 Questions. Did you ever hear that song? Nah. Yeah. Oh, man. It. That song was so good. I have another relationship to him in that I own this bottle of effing vodka. Have you ever seen this thing? No. So a, a few years ago, on my birthday, my friend Danielle got me a bottle of effing vodka, which is 50 cents vodka, and it was signed by 50 cent because Whoa. she went to a effing vodka bottle signing. <laughs> and so I have this incredibly outsized, unopened bottle of vodka that sits on one of the bars in my house, and people are always like, what is that and why do you have it and that is the reason um because i have great friends who give great gifts uh so i think about i think about 50 cent a lot because <laughs> of that big big ass bottle in your house uh so the smoking gun stuff starts in mid 2008 and in january 2009 when he still hasn't really gotten this out of the way, right? Because I said he doesn't really admit it until May of 2009. Like, in January, he starts a public feud with 50 Cent, which supposedly has something to do with 50 mean-mugging him at the BET Music Awards. I mean, it's like something ridiculous, like high school-level ridiculous. Um, and this includes all the classic elements of a hip-hop feud. I, I don't know what you know about hip-hop feuds, but mixtape verses, right? Uh, diss tracks, internet releases, uh, setting all the slights and the slams to beats, like all that needs to take place for a good for a good hip hop feud for for a good rumble. <laughs> Given all that's going on in this period, Thrill Cross's reputation, Fifty Cent takes full advantage. At one point, he releases a song called Officer Ricky, and oh, oh, and and then Murdoch. That's not enough. He makes a series of Officer Ricky cartoons. <gasps> what? And I have them. They're on YouTube. They're in the show notes if you want to watch them. And let me tell you, it's mostly just him putting the heads of famous rappers on cartoon bodies and using drops from songs to make them communicate. It's very strange. DMX is heavily featured on the one I pulled, along with a robot version of T-Pain. Your boy T-Pain is involved. Yeah. It's quite the viewing experience. It's very strange. So cartoon shorts mocking you is pretty <laughs> is pretty rough, right? Like that's that's a pretty rough move. But fifty levels up after this, and he makes it really personal. In February, so this was starts in January. In February, Fifty Cent uploads a YouTube video in which he interviews a woman addressed in the video as Tia, who claims to be the mother of one of Ross's children. Oh, my God. Now, remember, at this point, Ross hasn't admitted that he was a prison guard. She verifies that he was a correctional officer and claims that his whole persona is fake and made up. <laughs> so, like, if he left 50 Cent out of it, he probably could have, like, sold the life for longer. But he's, like, actually goes around and, A, publicizes it just to mess with him, and, B, goes and, like, finds people from his past. So this all begs the question, if the persona Ross has been capitalizing on is fake, whose persona is it? And does it belong to someone else? And that's how we get to the main attraction of this story in that third event. And that's how we get to Ricky Ross or Freeway Rick Ross, depending on how you want to refer to him. Or 
on Law and Order would be called Ross versus Ross. <laughs> Reminding you that Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is brought to you today by HelloFresh. If you feel like you're stuck in a rut when it comes to dinner and you're tired of going to the grocery store and standing in the aisle and trying to remember if you have onion powder, welcome to my life. Uh, you can get mouthwatering seasonal recipes and all of the pre-measured ingredients you need delivered right to your door. You can skip all those trips, baby. Make it happen and get 80 bucks off in the meantime when you go to the link in our show note. Now, back to the show. Can we go down a non-rock and roll rabbit hole for a minute? to give this uh, part of the story some significance and context in a little bit of a true crime flair. Sure, yeah. Um, as many of you know, rock and roll uh, is is one of my main passions in life. But another thing that I love and freely uh, admit to and feel intensely towards is, is good journalism. There is a Kentucky journalist who plays a small role in this story. And that's the entry point I'd like to use to help us uh, speed everything up. This guy's name is Gary Webb. Sound familiar at all? No, not really. So he graduated from Northern Kentucky University, okay? And he's a former investigative journalist in Cincinnati and in Cleveland and in other places. But he's most known for a series of articles he publishes when he works at the San Jose, California Mercury News in 1996. And this has come to be known as the Dark Alliance series. Now... You can go really deep on this story if you'd like, and I have a feeling some of you will because it's there's a lot to cover. I'm just going to have to just kind of skim over it, um, and it's really interesting, and it involves government conspiracy and potential, like, did they or didn't they kill off Gary Webb themselves, the government that is. Uh, but to keep it focused on our purposes today, I'm going to summarize it like this. The lead of the first article in the Dark Alliance series that he wrote in 1996, basically claims this. For the better part of a decade, a San Francisco Bay Area drug ring sold tons of cocaine to the Crips and Bloods of Los Angeles and funneled millions in drug profits to a Latin American guerrilla army run by the U.S. Central Intelligence Agency. This drug ring ring opened the first pipeline between Colombia's cocaine cartels and the black neighborhoods of Los Angeles. And as a result, the cocaine that flooded in helped spark a crack explosion in America. So this is the journalism base for something that has become much more accepted as truth, which is that the CIA was heavily behind crack in LA. So to show this in this Dark Alliance series... Gary Webb focuses on three dudes. Oscar Danilo Blandon and Norwin Mincy's, who were Nicaraguans who smuggled drugs into the U.S. and supplied dealers, and a dealer named Ricky Ross. <laughs> now, it's important to note that this sets off bombs in the media and newspaper industry and views around reporting and what it said and how it positioned that information is like just a polarizing subject that pulls in all of the major newspapers in the country, right? It leads to more reporting, it leads to more articles, and it puts tremendous scrutiny and pressure on Gary Webb himself. It actually eventually leads to Gary Webb dying in his own home in what was ruled a suicide, but I mm. kid you not, somehow involves two gunshot wounds? 
So I tell you about Gary Webb and his journalism, not just to get you to waste a few more hours on the internet later, which you will, but to illustrate how Freeway Ricky Ross comes to notoriety on a national household name kind of a level. Also, to side note, there is a movie that I believe is still on Netflix called Kill the Messenger. It came out in 2014. It stars Jeremy Renner as Gary Webb. Oh, wow. Oh, that sounds great. And Michael K. Williams plays Ricky Ross in the movie. So uh, we could spend a lot of time diving into Rick, Ricky Ross's bio because it is freaking fascinating. But I'm just going to choose a few highlights to move us along, right? During the height of his drug dealing, Ross was said to have sold $3 million in one day and to have made more than $500 million between 1983 and 1984. Let that sink in for a minute. Just think about how much money that is. One dude. Uh, Much of Ross's success at evading law enforcement was due to his ring's possession of police scanners. Uh, Following one drug bust, an L.A. County sheriff remarked uh, that Ross's men have quote, better equipment than we do. Uh, He operated drug sales throughout the whole country, but has said on more than one occasion that his most lucrative sales territory was Ohio. So that's Well, hot dog. And his story is often cast that he was bright, but never learned to read and thus missed out on a tennis scholarship when he was a teenager. And this is important because he learned to read during his first prison stint at the age of 28, which led him to spending much more of his time behind bars studying the law, like freaking Shawshank Redemption. So after he was sentenced to life in prison under the three strikes law, he eventually discovers a legal loophole, has his case appealed, and wins. It's decided the three strikes law had been erroneously applied and his sentence gets reduced from life to 20 years. Wow. And he was released from... Uh, Federal Correctional Institution in Texarkana on September 29th, 2009. Okay. So you're you're fresh out of prison. What's the first thing you do in 2010? Get a cell phone. And after that, you, you probably scan some things on the internet and you utilize your newfound legal knowledge to sue someone else. <laughs> someone who seems right. to have no authentic backstory to their crack rap, but has been using your name. <laughs> I think we can all agree. Freeway Ricky has some real crack rap credibility. I mean, if, if you were gonna if you were gonna do crack rap and you needed people to believe it, the easiest thing to do would be to, you know, take the name of somebody like Ricky Ross. Uh, so as you might imagine, the court battle aspect of this story gets extremely technical and it's a bit tedious and it drags on for a good long while. But if you want to go down this hole, we can do it real quickly. It's all wrapped around timeliness, which this is really interesting. I had to read this. Honestly, I had to read this stuff about the legal case like four times to understand it. So I'm going to try to break it down as as simple as possible. The question becomes, if Rick Ross was making big headlines and bidding wars in 2006, but this lawsuit doesn't pop up until 2010, can it be legitimized? And this is because there are rules in most states and maybe even on the federal level, around a two-year period in which you can bring a lawsuit over this sort of thing. Now, I assume this must be so you can't just sue somebody because they're successful. You know what I mean? So, like, the idea that he needed to sue him early enough in his career to say, like, wait, 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 that's my name, and he's acting like he somehow has the same credibility Hmm. so that 
you not just do it when he's like worth a whole bunch of money, right? I, I guess. I guess that's why. So initially, a judge throws this out and says that the time period between rapper Ross hitting the scene and Ricky Ross filing the lawsuit is too long. But then there's a whole appeal built around a precedence from another case, which is fascinating. And I understand that you don't listen to rock and roll bedtime stories to hear these sorts of details, but I got real distracted by this. So there's a precedence (laughs) from another case that they used in this case, and it has to do (laughs) with Nestle Coffee's taster's choice. Do when I say Nestle Coffee Taster's Choice, do, can you can you picture the logo? Yeah, and I, of course I get it mixed up with with Folgers. Yeah, what what crappy coffee is your is your coffee of choice? Do you drink coffee? I don't. I don't generally know, and if I do, I drink it from like a local store and pay the five dollars for the thing. Yeah, so you don't but, make, you don't make it at home with some but, gross grounds. But the best. Part of waking up is Folgers in your, your cup. cup. Oh man, we whew, hmm, that didn't work out. Uh, so <laughs> no, it didn't. I remember Taster's Choice. We we didn't have it. My house was a was a Maxwell house and a Folgers house growing up, and uh, now I think that kind of tastes like garbage. So I'm you know I'll do a slightly higher end grocery store thing, right? Like. Um, you know, if if the Starbucks is 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 cheap enough in the store, like the bag you can buy in the store, I might buy that. Um, I might do the Dunkin', I might do the McDonald's version, I might do the store version. It just kind of depends. But I do remember Taster's Choice, and I specifically, when you say that to me, I remember the picture of like a dude's face being involved, right? And this is very important because basically what happened in this case is they used the face of some rando model, uh, and it all focuses on this. That case got focused on this idea of republication, right? So if there's a two-year clock in using someone's likeness or reputation or whatever, does it reset every time it gets used again or the ante gets upped in the way that it's used, right? Are you following me? Because it's kind of complicated. Okay. Eventually, though, an appeals court in 2013 opens things up beyond the challenge and affirms the dismissal but instead of, of, of using all of this garbage about timing, they just go at it from a completely different angle. And they use the First Amendment. And in the dispute, there was some evidence to suggest that Rick Ross had Ricky Ross in mind when he created his persona. Like, of course he did. Of, of course he did. But he's a big fat liar, as we've already learned about all this stuff about his CO pass. You might be asking why I brought that CO pass stuff up. It it all leads to this idea, A, that he's unreliable, and B, that he doesn't have a real backstory, right? Because those things all conflict. So, for example, uh, there is he is on the record at some point as saying that the, that the story of Free Ray Rick Ross, Ricky Ross, quote-unquote grabbed him. He said that at some point early in his career. On the record, I guess. And on the other hand... He also says, though, when people ask him about this, they're like, dude, did you name yourself after that guy? Uh, And he was like, no, no, man. Um, uh, My high school football nickname was Big Boss, which doesn't make any sense. Like, that doesn't seem... (laughs) Then why aren't you just Big Boss? Like, why are you Big Boss Rick Ross? Like, that that doesn't make any sense. Uh, So the judge decides to view Rick Ross versus William Leonard Roberts through the frame of other cases that have balanced the celebrity's right to control commercial exploitation of his likeness. 
Okay. Wow. Okay. So yeah, I know, I know. This is this is a little thick in the weeds, but this is what they eventually end up doing. We recognize that Robert's work, his music and persona as a rap musician, relies to some extent on the plaintiff's name and persona. This is from the actual uh, written decision. Roberts chose to use the name Rick Ross. He raps about trafficking cocaine and brags about his wealth. These were the, quote, raw materials from which Robert's music career was synthesized, but these are not the very sum and substance, quote unquote, of Robert's work. So in other words, it's okay because he's not telling people he is actually Ricky Ross. The persona is entitled to protection as expressive speech because he's transformed it into something else. Yeah, art. And this is how rapper Rick Ross comes out the winner and Freeway Rick Ross, fresh out of the pokey, (laughs) does not get his $10 million. Get screwed and so, probably stuck with lawyer fees. Listen, moral of the story: if you don't have an interesting past, feel free to borrow one. You know, for artistic purposes. Uh, and it's it's actually this is where I want to go back to where we started. It's a really interesting conversation about authenticity and what it means, kind of generationally, to people when it comes to entertainment. Totally coincidentally. I heard a conversation recently about a couple of music documentaries that were made in the early 2000s. They're about music and they're documentaries. You've probably seen them. The main one, though, is this this documentary called Dig. Have you have you seen this about yeah. Dandy Warhols and Brian Jonestown Massacre? Sure. Of course oh, yeah. you have. Of course you have. So an offhanded comment was made when these two people on another show were discussing this. And... One of them said, oh, yeah, this is, like, really interesting because this was all pre-Rick Ross and Lana Del Rey. That's, like, what he just said in passing. <laughs> Juxtaposing the idea of, of authenticity, which is in that story. I mean, that's kind of the question, as I understand it. I've not seen that documentary, but the Dandy Warhols versus Brian Jonestown Massacre. Who was more authentic? Who kind of yeah. sold out? All that stuff, right? I mean, I hear it said all the time now, right? Like, in 2021, it's, like, impossible to sell out. Like, no, right. nobody says that. Like, I remember growing up, we would say, like, oh, man, those musicians, they, I can't believe that. They totally sold out. Or that punk band totally sold out, right? They used to be three right. chords and yelling, and now they have a hook. And, you know, it's like Cave-In. I don't know if you, did you ever listen to Cave-In. This just is the one no. that comes to mind. But Cave-In was this hardcore band, and then they got this deal in the early 2000s, and they put out one record. It was called Antenna, and it was pretty good, but it sounded like the Foo Fighters. Like, it was like a pop rock record, basically, with a lot of guitars. And, you know, that was a great example that, oh, man, these guys, they sold out, right? Did Green Day sell out after Slappy Hours? Did, you know what I mean? Like, I, th- those are the questions we used to entertain ourselves with. And now I don't really feel like that exists. And I hadn't thought of, in the context of this conversation, I hadn't thought of Lana Del Rey. Like, do you know much about her? I mean, a little bit to be dangerous. It's, I mean, it's I- a little closer to the Andrew W.K. convo. Like, how much of a product is she? And, and if you do yeah, any of the right. research, it's like the, the answer is mostly a product. But, yes. like, everyone kind of knows it, and no one really cares. Like, no one thinks she's, like, this weird starlet from the 60s who got, like, frozen and came back here, right? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. she's clearly just a girl aping a bunch of style and and this idea of what it was like to be on Valium in the 50s or whatever. I, I mean, I don't know. You know what I mean? Like, it's... Right. people don't, People aren't being like oh this is really her and now i feel misled like it doesn't even matter 
because it's yeah. obviously a product. And and Rick Ross, to a certain degree, I think he's continued to be very successful. And I think people yeah. eventually just accepted, okay, he's he's just a guy who can rap. We don't really care whether or not he sold crack cocaine or was a CO or, you know. I mean, and he's done plenty. Let me just say, we haven't covered, like I've, I've stayed real focused on this part of the Rick Ross story. But he's done some crazy stuff, man. <laughs> like there's there are all kinds of crazy stories and lawsuits and battles and there's like a car wreck at one point. Like Rick Ross, lots of drama. Um, but that's they don't care. So what do you think about this idea of authenticity? Like in now and this idea of selling out. Do you think you can sell out in twenty twenty one? No, no. I don't think you can either. I, no, and it, um, you know I, I go back to that episode of this is pop the auto-tune episode where a guy says you know he goes up to the auto-tune creator and thank he says thank you and i used to have to find people that were good singers now i just have to find people that are good looking yeah so yeah you know it's like what really is it about selling out when well, green day signed a reprise and they put out the enormous record in 94 and they played Woodstock and uh, they just blew up like they were playing you know they were on the bottom card of like stuff and then they were headlining arenas by the end of the year and all they did was they signed a major label like that's they sold out because they they went from the, the small label to the big label and you know I think that they sound exactly the same but I think part of the reason you can't sell out anymore is the the gatekeepers are gone like the way that you approach a career is totally different because yeah. you you have to, I mean, there are definitely ways that people jump a bunch of the gates and end up with, you know, a, a leg up or an opportunity. Right. But for the most part, if you're going to make money in the game anymore, you're going to tour. And so right. you yeah. have to actually put some grit into that, right? You're not, you don't have all the vehicles you used to have because everything's been sort of democratized by streaming services and such. So you're not out there with some huge advantage because your record drops in record stores on Friday. Like you can, you can yeah. be a, a small band from somewhere and put up your SoundCloud. And I mean, we, there's all sorts of stories about that, right? And then it becomes this whole new story of like, oh, we discovered them out of, no, we're all, we're still looking for the authenticity. We're still looking for the authenticity, even though things like, I mean, I don't think XX Tentacion and those guys were like authentic, really, right? Like they were looking for this opportunity, but because it came through SoundCloud and it didn't come through the normal distribution means initially, it, it seems to have a little more credence. Like I still think there is a form of authenticity, but I don't think it's like it was 20 years ago at all. Right. Do you remember Apocalyptica? Do you remember them? Were they the, the 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 like they played string instruments and did like Metallica songs and stuff? Yeah, there are four guys that played cellos. Uh-huh. They all they played cellos. Yeah. They played Metallica songs, and they couldn't speak English. And at the end <laughs> of the at the end of the song, they would just hold up devil horns. <laughs> they would all do it, and it and it made it it made it to where like oh is everybody in everybody in on it? Yeah, you know, yeah. We're we're playing we're cellos and we're playing Metallica songs, and I think that. I think there's been some cases where people are able to sort of break through that fourth wall of being an act and not having to worry about what people think about how they're being an act, if that makes sense. Well, now it's, you know, it's almost rewarded, um, this idea of not being consistent and not being, you know, like, for instance, 
I've been really into that new 21 Pilots record and I was planning on a vacation and my kids are really into it and we're all singing it and we turned it up and my wife who hadn't listened to it a ton is like, this is good, but like this last track sounded like the Beatles and this next track has rap in it and this next track, she's like, I don't understand what's happening, right? Like we don't even, the things that are being put out there now don't even have those parameters around them anymore. And I think a lot of it comes from a generation of people who grew up with playlists as opposed to making investments in albums. Like you and I, man, that was a thing. We had to go and figure out how we were going to spend a certain amount of income to get the records that we heard were good. $18 on an album that would, or a CD that would come in a big plastic, big cardboard thing. It it had all the plastic, like anti-theft thing on the bottom of it, which like how many animals have died because of that waste? What was the first CD that you bought? I got two at the same time and they were gifts. Uh, and it was Whitney Houston's self-titled debut. Yes. And, and, and ACDC's For Those About to Rock, We Salute You. Well, I, and here I was saying that kids these days uh, have a, a better sense of like just liking things that they like instead of worrying about genres. But uh, you just made a pretty good case for uh, that not being a new thing. <laughs> what should i listen to acdc or whitney houston so back to this thing i I do think that this whole discussion warrants mentioning the hip-hop practice of co-opting names like this isn't a new thing this has been going on for a long time um there are a full list of stage names derived from gangster or mafia or drug dealing backgrounds many of whom we've already mentioned including scarface and ironically even 50 cent 50 cent was like named himself after a guy nobody had ever heard of but in most cases these other examples take only part of the name or a nickname, and they're like usually based like on fictional characters. Like French Montana is a reference to Scarface. It's worth noting that for several years, there was a rapper in Louisville who went by a stylized spelling of Jalen Rose. You remember this? No. So now, I mean, his name is James Lindsay, and now he goes by James Lindsay. And a shout-out, because oh. he's got... Uh, a great record called Same Sky that came out a couple years ago. You can find it on Spotify, wherever you stream music. Check it out. It's really good. Uh, but yeah, he, for a long time, would book uh, gigs under under this weird spelling of Jalen Rose, which, of course, is a reference to the former basketball player. Um, and so th- this is like a thing people have done. But it's a little different because Rick Ross was definitely leaning into the idea of uh, the crack cocaine thing. Um couple of notes before we fully wrap. Yeah. I did not read Rick Ross's autobiography for this. I almost did. I literally almost bought it. Uh, but given what we've just discussed, I started to figure out that it would probably just be a whole lot of lies. And I wasn't sure I wanted to obfuscate my other research. Um, not sure how helpful it would have been. Freeway Rick Ross? This is a very important note. Seems to be doing great. I highly encourage you to visit him, him on Instagram. Uh He's got 250,000 followers, and you can find out all about his new passion, which I don't think is going to surprise you, is, drumroll please, legal weed. He has his own branded strain, and it's in <laughs> it's in the L.A. Kingpins series. Like I, I guess there's a whole series of branded weeds you can buy that's named after famous drug dealers of the past, uh, but his is called Rick Ross OG Cannabis Flower. Last question I need to ask you is this. Yeah. If you were going to riff on someone's moniker for your stage name, what would you steal? Uh, Sebastian Bach. 
And which and then which one am I choosing? Oh, oh, nice. Yeah. <laughs> Love it. We haven't even talked about that, though. I don't think there was any real confusion between which one was. You know, they, which, they, they lived a few centuries apart. Um, yeah. If you want to get involved in the show, all you have to do is head to the website, wearethestoryguys.com, or you can always uh, email us, wearethestoryguys at gmail.com. We'd love to chat with you. Leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you uh, download the show. Let people know why you like it. That helps us out a lot. And what should people keep doing until next time? Keep telling stories, Rick Rosboss. Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is a Story Guys production. The show is produced and edited by Brian Eichenberger. Get more stories, hear more podcasts, and book the guys for your conference or house party at wearethestoryguys.com. Copyright Boy Have We Got Stories Productions. All rights reserved.